Hey. Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, and welcome to Kudzu Vine for January 29th, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And sitting in for Tim, our special guest host for the evening, uh, Vincent Olszewski. Welcome, Vinny. Well, thank you, David, and thank you, Catherine. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Um, I'm excited. Yes, and Vinny, I want to tell you, you may be the first guest host we've ever had that was not first a guest, and that's how much Catherine and, and Tim and I thought of you, that we, you, you could go skip right over the backup role, right into the starting role, um, and, uh, you know, guest host. And, but that means that you need to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. So just tell them about your political biography. We know there's multi-parts to this thing. Well, sure. First of all, I want to let you all know that I turned down a job to go, go play quarterback for the 49ers in the second half to be on this because they seem to be out of quarterbacks. Um, <laughs> but, um, no, I've been around the party 40 years. I have been working in campaigns since I was a senior in high school and have worked my way up through the party, through the Young Democrats, through uh, various roles in in my local and state party. Um, I currently um, a, am a political operative consultant, staffer, whatever word you like to use this week. Um, for, a, for the past eight years, I chaired the Democratic Party of Georgia's Disability Caucus because Disability rights is my my second love, or really probably my first love. I do a lot of work in the community, both partisan and non nonpartisan work. I currently serve on the as the vice president of the board of directors for the Northwest Georgia Center for Independent Living. Um, I just recently got elected to be the Democratic Party of Georgia's uh, vice chair of constituency groups, where my role is to help um, expand and increase participation by many of the different constituencies that make up the Democratic Party's big blue tent. So I'm excited for, for that challenge, and it's an honor to be here with, with, with David and Catherine, who I've known for, for many years and have been uh, staunch Democrats and, 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 and very active in the political system. And I'm just excited to be here. Yes. Now, Vinny, the NFC Championship game would have been over before the show started, so that wouldn't have precluded you from being on the show. But the bad news is you'd probably been in the concussion protocol, um, so that would have, you know, stopped you there. But um, so you've just taken over this new role, and I, I know Catherine was very interested in that. So I don't want—I want to give Catherine a chance to um, ask anything she might about um, your work on any part of the uh, Democratic Party Tortoise Committee, Catherine. Yeah, Vinny, is that a new chair position? No, I I think in 20, 
either 11 or 15. I think it predates me just a little in terms of the state committee, but they they created sort of there's the three kind of co-equal vice chairs, candidate recruitment, uh, county parties, and then um, constituency groups. Um, okay, I, I uh, guess so I... Well, I yeah, remember that we had the constituency groups. I just didn't remember that there was a vice chair overseeing that. I think that's great. It's, it, it, it emphasizes how important that is. So, and thank you for doing that hard work. I know, I know I've been there. I've done some of that work. Yes, you have. You. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's again, I'm, yeah. I'm, I, I was succeeded by uh, form, now former state representative B. Wynn. Um, she had the, the position before I did. Oh, okay. Well, those are big shoes to fill. But, but I won't you be can handle it. State anytime soon. Yeah. <laughs> yes, well, that's great. Thank you, you for Betty. doing that work. Yeah, you'll be the first of the three people that have held that post that has not been in the state legislature. Um, so you'll be, you know angling it from a different um, perspective. Yeah, the, the first person was State Representative uh, Pedro Marin. All right. Well, let's talk, get into our first topic, and this is something we've actually had, I know we had on the docket last week. Um, and actually, before we get into this, I, I'm remiss to um, not talk about our guest calling in here in about um, – 16 minutes or so, uh, who's been on the show multiple times from Daily Co's elections, Jeff Singer. Uh, but until then, this topic we're going to discuss first, we've been wanting to discuss for at least a week, maybe two, and it would be um, a bill, a proposal that uh, Georgia State Representative Buddy, or Georgia uh, U.S. Representative Buddy Carter from the southeast corner of the state, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, he, this was kind of one of the things he worked out with Kevin McCarthy to get his vote to bring this bill uh, to the House. And as soon as it was found out that this bill was going to get to the House floor, it has been talked about on a national basis. So if nothing else, Buddy Carter has raised his um, personal profile, because I don't think a lot of people knew him before this outside of the state. But this bill is, I guess, technically what you call a value-added tax, although he looks at it a lot as a flat tax, selling the, oh, tax, the taxation code would be simpler through it. But what it would do is it would levy roughly a 30% flat tax on all goods and services. Now, you know, it would take off the income tax, which – it varies from income level to income level, but the average is somewhere in the neighborhood of about 28%. Um, but there are different deductions that lower that. So I'm not an accountant, and I'm not even smart enough uh, on this policy to play one on TV, but I do know that um, it's not a quiet apples to apples trade out there. Um, Catherine, when you heard, I mean, we've heard about flat taxes and VATs for a while, but when you heard this proposal came up, kind of what were just your initial thoughts of the actual proposal itself? Well, the <clears throat> the initial thought whenever we talk about a flat tax or a value-added tax or, you know, a, <clears throat> a national sales tax to replace uh, the IRS 
it's always most damaging to the poorest people in the country because they spend more of their money on goods and services than rich people. Um, And rich people can uh, decide not to buy that yacht or not to buy that expensive car, but, you know, people in the lower economic um, levels have to buy groceries and they have to buy diapers and, you know, whatever, whatever they have to buy to, you know, thrive. So it's, it's a terrible, a terrible tax for most of the people in the country, honestly. And the thing that I read an article, I think in the AJC the other day, and I'm reading through it and I'm like, okay, well, what about local sales tax? So for example, in Fulton County, where I live, we already have like a 8.75%, I think that's what it is, sales tax. So it would be in addition to that. So in Fulton County, we're looking at a 40% tax. Also, the other interesting thing about this that's very specific is that this would not be a add-on tax that is added on to your, like when you go to buy something, it says it's $10 and then you pay, uh, you know, $3 more. It would be included in the price of the product or service. So that that ten dollar item would actually sell for thirteen dollars instead of yeah, I didn't know that part of it. I mean, yeah, that the day also, that really doesn't yeah change the dynamics really of what but, you're buying, but it that's true. The, the, but the, the yeah, it's an it's a nasty the government um, like they like to do. It's a nasty idea. But by doing by by yeah. adding it into the actual price, they kind of hide the tax. The people don't realize right. they're paying that much tax. And the thing that I thought was interesting, it's a 127 page bill. <laughs> you would think trying to simplify things. Why do you have, why do you have to 127 pages to simplify the tax code? But what it also says it's it's on the states to collect. You know, the businesses to collect it, and they then pay it to the state who then have to forward it to the federal government. So it's putting an extra burden on Oh the, yeah, on that's the, bad. On on the obviously first the, the sellers and then on the state and built into it it said the businesses by if they pay if they send the taxes along, they get a point two five percent rebate of the taxes they have to collect. But it talks about how it's going to save all these IRS agents. Well, it might save some, but there's still going to have to be somebody there getting on, you know, making sure that people are collecting the sales tax and sending it to the state that the states are sending and it's accurate. So, you know, they make it sound like it's going to save all this, all this money from by getting rid of the IRS. Well, somebody's going to have to administer it. Yeah, absolutely. And before we even get into some of the unintended consequences, like how it could lead to the rise of the black market, how it could lead to the rise of bartering um, as well, um, just the fact that, like, if you instituted this in total, you never, you know, phased it in and how many ever years, 
could be slowly phased in and, and income tax phased out because I'm sure they want to shock the system. Catherine, what do you think that would do to businesses? I mean, people are right now buying at one level. Everything goes up 30% overnight, and, I mean, restaurants, um, all kinds of goods, some which people have to have, but then some people choose to have and they help our economy function. Um, what would happen to the economic plight of the American economy and probably then the world economy in the short term? It wouldn't. I don't think it would be pretty. I, I think it would – I think that there would be a lot more um, – people would be much more deliberate with their spending when they're looking at a 30% increase on their, on their expenses, basically. Um, so you're going to see, um, I think, restaurants and travel are probably the first things that get hurt, and then luxur- and luxury goods. You know, perfumes, um, uh, luxurious other like department store products, like uh, expensive clothing. Um, you know, those kind of uh, luxury um, liquor and you know alcohol and those kind of things. So yeah, I, it 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 will it will have an impact. Um, I mean, not that everyone buys those things all the time, but I think, you know, there are people who, you know, they save up their money so they can buy a a luxurious item for their partner for, for Christmas or something. But those, I think those uh, incidental uh, unnecessary expenses go out the window when you're focusing on being able. And the impact on unemployment. I mean, Think again, like Captain's point, to people today going out to dinner. Well, right. you know, those people, know, whether it's the people in the kitchen or the servers, those are jobs. And, and so it'll have, you know, it'll, you know, be bad for unemployment, which is overall bad for the economy. When people aren't, aren't making money, they're not spending money. Well, I'm sure Buddy Carter yeah, and- would say that they're not going to be taxed on their income, so they'll have more uh, more disposable income. But it's not going to equal it. It's not going to work out. <clears throat> That's, I'm sure, what that No, is. I mean, because you would get those deductions gone, and then, of course, that initial sticker shock is going to happen. And, and Vinny, you make a good point about, Restaurants, because you know, I mentioned, and we probably do need to get talk about it because I think it was Grover Norquist, which you think would be the kind of person who would like a proposal like this. He actually mentioned how this would lead to a huge rise of the black market, and we know, like for when uh, Canada increased their cigarette taxes really high, there became a black market there. Um, one area in which you really couldn't find a black market, or at least I don't see how that would exactly function would be the restaurant industry. I mean, I don't think we'll start going out to eat in the back of people's houses or like a restaurant. So the restaurant industry would take a huge hit because obviously the taxation on that food would be far higher than buying groceries uh, and cooking your own meals. So um, kind of talk to that 
whole black market side of this, like where do you see the biggest problems on that part of this proposal? Are you asking both of us? Uh, I'm asking Vinny. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and and, and again, I I don't even pretend to to play an economist on TV, but yeah, I mean, it's certainly, it'll open it up, organized crime, let's face it, who's going to have the capacity to, you know, create a large black market for items, whether it be bringing them in from Canada or Mexico or someplace or, or making them themselves, it isn't going to be mom and pop that has a big black market in their basement, you know, so it's just opening it up, you know, open, you know, I mean, I hate to make the analogy, but think of prohibition. <laughs> where did, you know, where did, where did all that black market material come from? And, you know, and it's, it's, I, I guess we'll see maybe, you know, for the rest of us, maybe we'll see more unlicensed food trucks or people trying to sell stuff, you know, selling burgers on the street or something. I, I don't know, but it's, yeah, it, there's, there's, it, there's so many reasons why this is a bad idea that it, it, it's hard to yeah. comprehend that, that people are really taking it seriously. Yeah, and both of y'all mentioned alcohol, and then you think about that. If if illegal alcohol and even states that have legal marijuana, you then tax that, what are people going to do? Not hopefully a lot of people, but more than do now, and, and more in this case is too many, um, might go to harder drugs, much more dangerous drugs. Um, and then what would that do to our society? That would be a terrible repercussion. It's one that a lot of Republicans like to talk about it as a problem, you know, meth and uh, fentanyl and all, but they never really talk about it in a treatment side, and you'd have to even think about more treatment side. But let's kind of get more back into the politics of this, and let's talk about Buddy Carter. Um, Catherine, um, have you heard in the past, has Buddy Carter been a big proponent of this like a long time? Because I remember John Linder, who used to be a state representative, or sorry, U.S. representative um, from the DeKalb Gwinnett area, um, was a huge proponent of the flat tax for years. I never knew that Buddy Carter was such a huge um, backer of this. Um, what's his affiliation here? I, I I don't know. I'd never associated him with that, but I don't follow him very closely, so I, I'm not a very good judge of it. Yeah. Vinny, any ideas about the yeah. past history of tax, tax policy and Buddy Carter? Well, did, I mean, I don't know. Did he did, – did, this is more of a question than – than did he kind of come in in that whole sort of Tea Party wave? They were kind of, you know, sort of fair taxers. I don't know if he maybe came in in that wave and, you know, 2010, 2012, and Tea Party was pushing changes to the tax code. Or, I don't know, maybe he just sees this as his way to get his 15 minutes. Yeah, to be honest, it seems like since 94, there's just wave after wave, and every wave gets uh, more and more out there. Um, You you know, (laughs) Joe Scarborough came in in the 94 wave, and now he's on MSNBC, and Joe Walsh came in um, in the first Tea Party group, and now he's – you know, fairly sane. Um, so they just keep getting further and further out there. I, I guess 
Buddy Clevin just wanted some attention, um, and he's certainly, you know, gotten it on one level. And um, let's let's kind of put a pin in this, and we're going to get back into some more hardcore electoral politics with our guest. Welcome back to the Cousin Vine, Jeff Singer. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Great to be back. Yeah, good to have you. Well, uh, Jeff, um, good to have you. I'll tell you what. I love having you on the show, and, and one thing that got me in front, got your name again in front of me, was the the story of getting dating advice from Adam West. And I know that on the political document, but why not just start with that? <laughs> Tell us the story quickly. This is okay. So this was back in 2011. It um it was in New Orleans when I lived there. They have a comic con, and. I was going to comic going to Comic Con New Orleans and Adam West was one of their guests and he was had an autograph booth and so I was kind of, I I loved the Batman series as a kid his Batman series from the sixties so much I watched it so early I didn't really entirely understand it was a joke I took it completely seriously until I didn't but so Adam West is a longtime childhood hero of mine anyways. So I'm a little nervous to meet him. A friend she who'd gone with me, she um she encouraged me, so we go we we go up there to his booth. For some reason there isn't any line and we go there and he starts chatting with us and he assumes me and my friend are dating where we weren't, but at least that's what I thought because he's just talking about saying like, So if you're going on a date with a girl, uh, you know, take her to a nice restaurant or something and I had not brought this up at all. And just for my childhood hero, just to be like, yeah, take her, take, turn to a nice restaurant. You know, it could have been something much weirder, but it was coming from Adam West. And as a friend I wasn't dating, like, years later when Adam West died, um, if 2016, I, I wrote about this. And she, and I said, yeah, he gave me, um, un, he gave me unplanned dating advice. And she responded, yes, I was that girl. It was awkward. So, Crazy and, story, but I will. And, <laughs> and he um he signed my autograph, even though I, I was supposed to pay for it. But I think he just I don't know. He just saw how much of a fanboy I was. He just let me get it for free, and so I have Adam West's autograph and and some advice from him that I will never forget, no matter how much that sometimes I might want to. <laughs> yeah, I think a good conversation is always more valuable than an autograph. And obviously, if anybody. The question should be who was the second best Batman, not who was the best, because obviously everyone knows it was the television version of Adam West. Well, let's get into some real hardcore politics, your real um, wheelhouse. And you mentioned that you lived in New Orleans, so anytime I think Louisiana politics, um, I'm like, I want to get Jeff's thoughts on it because he's down there, you know, been there in Tulane and New Orleans and the population center. So we know that they had a multi-term, in many quarters, a surprise incumbent, John Bell Edwards, who was the um, benefactor of David Vitter, a scandal machine. Um, but now he's term limited, and the um, state of you know Louisiana is open open seat again, and it's obviously not been the most friendly climate for Democrats in recent years. Just kind of tell us how this um, odd-year governor's race sets up. Yeah, so the race is still taking shape. It's one of 
three governor's races that are up this year. The others are Kentucky and Mississippi. And like you're saying, Louisiana has not been a friendly state for Democrats. It's been in, at the beginning of the 21st century, like a lot of the South's conservative Democrats were still hanging on. They hung on a bit longer in Louisiana than they did in some neighboring states, but the bottom really fell out in early in the late 2000s, early 2010s. Louisiana gave close to 60% of its vote to Donald Trump. It's been very red for a long time, but like you said, John Bell Edwards was the exception. In 2015, he won this miraculous race for governor that met almost nobody, including myself, thought he could win just weeks ago, weeks before that. A lot of it was bitter, had many scandals from his alleged time um, going to sex workers. Also, Bobby Jindal, the termed out governor back then, he was incredibly unpopular. He was running for president while he left the state economy in just the dumps. Many of the Republicans that are beat hated him, and one of them endorsed John Bell Edwards. So he won this miraculous victory in a state that Democrats so rarely win in. In 2019, he wins a close re-election fight. He's termed out now. Louisiana is still a very red state. They're, John Bell Edwards, especially in 2019, when he won a really close win, he gave Democrats sort of a blueprint for how to win so we do have an idea of what a close Democratic victory looks like, but it still takes a lot. And I should say before getting to the candidates, Louisiana's electoral systems differ from almost anywhere else in the country. No Democrat, except for, for president, no Democratic or Republican primaries for any other office. Everyone just runs on one ballot. And if you get 50% of the vote or more, congratulations, you've won. Otherwise, the two candidates with the most votes, regardless of party, go to a runoff a month later. So there's always a chance you could have two Republicans in the runoff for governor, one Democrat, one Republican. It's always possible you could have two Democrats, but it's just such a red state. Things would just have to line up just so perfectly, and you can't really plan for that. So a lot of things could happen. Yes, um, um, would you I like know to- that in the Senate race – um, the, the two, uh, the Democrats, uh, Luke Mixon and Gary Chambers, they didn't even combine for the, fifth, the requisite 50 percent to um, force a one-on-one challenge to um, John uh, John Kennedy. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's a very tough state. John Bell Edwards, he won a big victory in 2015. He won a close re-election fight in 2019. Those are the only two recent Democratic statewide victories, period. Before that, you have to go to Mary Landrieu when she won re-election to the Senate in 2008. She lost to Bill Cassidy six years later. So in recent times, you have John Bell Edwards, and you don't have anyone else. Yes. Well, kind of give us um, the lay of the land on what candidates are already announced. Yes. So at the moment, it's almost all been Republicans who have announced. The front runner, pretty much everyone will agree, is the Attorney General, Jeff Landry. He's, he served one term in the House in 2010 to 2012 as a Tea Party Republican. He's very far right. If you pick an issue in Louisiana politics, he's on the wrong side of it. He's, he's, very, he's, he's very big on, on going after vaccine mandates. He's sued to overturn Biden's win. He's just he's as far right as you can get away with in Louisiana and then some. 
pretty much everyone agrees he's the front runner because he's a statewide elected official. The Louisiana Republican Party pretty controversially, controversially endorsed him a few months ago, even though there are other Republicans who are looking at the race. A few have since joined in. One of them is State Senate Senator Sharon Hewitt. She's the co-author of the congressional gerrymander that helps lock in a five-to-one Republican majority and infamously made just one majority black congressional district out of the six, even though the state's about a third black. If she won, she'd be only the second woman to be governor of Louisiana after the late Democrat Kathleen Blanco, who was in charge during Katrina. So she's one of the other Republican candidates. Another is the state treasurer, John Schroeder. He's He's not particularly prominent, even though he's also a statewide elected official. He's been trying to fix that. He's been trying to pick some fights over where the state invests its pensions. He's saying, I don't want to invest in any of these woke companies. And he defines woke as companies that are saying, hey, we're going to take maybe climate change into into, um, account when we make our investments. So Schroeder's kind of trying to be kind of ride the Jeff Landry lane, but he's not nearly as prominent. The fourth announced Republican is State Representative Richard Nelson. He's, he's a freshman. He's only 36. He's much younger than the rest of the field. He's conservative, but he's trying to be – he's more of a wild card. His big thing is he wants to eliminate the – he wants to eliminate the income tax in the state and replace it by taxing corporations more. So kind of an interesting mix there. He also – he also wants to decriminalize marijuana, and he said he's aiming for the middle. So he's he's no moderate by any means, but he's not the same type of hard right extremist that the others are, especially Landry. There's one other announced candidate. He's an independent. He's an attorney, Hunter Lundry. He Lundy. He hasn't attracted too much attention yet, but we'll see. Um, I haven't haven't mentioned any Democrats because no major Democrats have announced yet, but that's going to change. It's just a question of which ones do get in. One of the big candidates who – potential Democratic candidates who's attracted a lot of attention is the State Secretary of Transportation, Sean Wilson. He formed an exploratory committee a little while ago. He said he's close to deciding likely to run. He'd be the first black statewide elected official since Reconstruction. Another potential candidate is Hilar Moore. He's the he's the district attorney of East Baton Rouge Parish. Um, I should just say, in Louisiana, parishes are what counties are almost everywhere else. And East Baton Rouge, it's the largest parish in the state. It's home to the state capital, Baton Rouge, some of its suburbs. It's kind of confusing that it's named East Baton Rouge when it contains all of Baton Rouge, but I don't make these names. He's said he's held a sign this coming week. Some Democrats kind of see him as sort of like John Bell Edwards, kind of the same mold as kind of conservative white Democrat. We'll see if he runs, see how he does. A bit, another controversy in Louisiana politics for a different state party, the head of the state Democratic Party, Katie Bernhardt, she's interested. She just started a super PAC ad where she didn't say anything about running, but it's clearly designed to get her name out. Some members of the state party, they're mad that she's talking about or that she's positioning herself to run for governor instead of doing state party things. So a bit controversial there. Um, 
there's a, there's been a few other people been talked about. State Senator Gary Smith, he's he expressed interest here and there. It's a few other names, but those are the big ones. Nobody's announced yet. Um, we'll see what happens. Louisiana's filing deadline is until August, and in the state, there's always, always, right before an election, there's always talk of somebody ma- jumping in late. Usually doesn't happen, but occasionally. There have been, there's, there are stories of people who fill out their paperwork, sit in the car, and decide whether they're going to enter just before filing closes then. <laughs> so it's a state where things can change quickly. And it's also because we have the all-party primary there, it's always possible that if too many Democrats run, you could have it could split the Democratic vote enough that two Republicans advance to the general election. Like I said, it's always possible you could have two Democrats doing that instead, but it's just so hard to pull off in Louisiana. So we'll see what happens. Things are very in flux. Um, I should also mention there's one other Republican who's getting talked about, Congressman Derek Graves. He's expressed interest, but he just got a pretty good position in the House leadership, so probably not going to happen, but you never know. Yes, well, I have one more global question about Louisiana. You mentioned climate change, Um, and and honestly, you mentioned Jeff Landry and COVID. That's a state where, particularly in New Orleans, COVID hit really hard, and people seem to ignore it. But then more importantly, in longer term, this, the lower part of Louisiana and even New Orleans, you have um, areas in the Placa Mines which are literally going underwater, and people can see their property slowly but surely, you know, getting less and less and going underwater due to sea level rise. And then, of course, you had Hurricane Katrina, and we know that these storms are getting more erratic, more violent, and obviously the southern part and probably the northern parts of Louisiana suffered through that. But they seem not to really care as far as connecting the political dots. Um, Why is it climate change a little more of a voting force or a voting issue for Louisiana voters? I mean, I wish it was. And climate restoration is talked about. Um, Derek Graves, the congressman, before he was there, he was the big climate. He was part of Bobby Jindal's administration doing climate restoration work. So there is always talk about that, but... Part of it is the oil companies are just so, so powerful there. And a lot of people work in the oil industry. When Back in 2010, when the BP oil spill happened, devastated the local fishery economy, there was, there was plenty of anger at BP, no question, but much of the anger was also directed at the Obama administration for putting in a moratorium on drilling. You have people like Jeff Landry who – Next year at, this, at Obama State of the Union, he held up a sign saying something like, oil equals jobs, drilling equals jobs. So it's often hard to – first of all, it's often hard just to convince Republicans, no matter what's happening at their own doorstep, that climate change is a voting issue or something that they should apart from the party or the oxyon. That's not unique to Louisiana. I mean, we have Florida, which has taken a hard right turn, even though it gets battered by storms all the time. There's there's a lot going on here. Part of it is economics with big oil companies just having so much of an impact. Part of it is just how partisan everything is. And 
you know, there's there's always there's always the whole frog in the pond that the frog in the I'm missing the word. There's that there's that story that Al Gore told in Inconvenient Truth where the frog is boiling and if you suddenly put the frog in boiling water it jumps out, but if you slowly ratchet it up it doesn't really notice and gets used to it and then eventually bad things happen and I feel like that's kind of what's happening. Storms are getting worse, but it's not like it went from everything was fine to there's a massive storm outside every week. It kind of just gradually gets worse and you might have a category five, but those did exist before so people can kind of convince themselves that no, it's not climate change or climate change isn't making things that much worse when it is. So it's, it's something that people should be voting on, but it's hard to, it's often hard to get that through. And that's kind of, kind of the job for some of these Democrats to make it a, Hey, this is something that is affecting you. You need, you should base your vote on it. Yes. Well, um, I have thoroughly, I think, asked a lot about Louisiana. I know that Catherine and Vinny um, are, have a lot of questions for you about other states because you cover all over the country. So I'm going to pass it to Catherine, and she'll pass it to Vinny for more questions. Catherine? Hey, Jeff. Thanks for being with us tonight. <clears throat> we yeah, great talking. So I want, I want to ask you about two states. Well, I want to ask some more general question that has well i'll start with that so for as long as i've been following politics on election night everybody's always focused on florida like what's going to happen in florida and for the most part we're disappointed as democrats right i mean yeah (laughs) it's not very it's not very often that it but we still we still have hope for some reason. <clears throat> so I'm just wondering, as we move into, like, as we start talking about 2024, God knows I wish we weren't, but we are, are we going to stop looking at Florida and start looking at some of the others? You know, like, are we going to look at Georgia? Because Georgia's changing slowly but surely. And then South and North Carolina, and maybe, I mean, we can forget Alabama and Mississippi, but... Do you think we can, like, is there going to be a shift in, or are we still always going to hold out hope for Florida? (laughs) Yeah, so like you said, Florida, it's broken a lot of Democratic hearts, and last year it was just devastating for Democrats. There wasn't a red wave nationally, but there sure was one in Florida. Yeah, it was Ron DeSantis. yeah. Yeah, Ron DeSantis in 2018, he won by just a percentage point. This time it was some, it was, it was a wipeout. So the the question, are we going to be focusing on other southern states like Georgia and North Carolina? Yes. Um, that was a big focus on them in 2020 and, you know, paid off with Biden's historic Georgia win. And in 2022, Georgia got far more focus, rightly so, than Florida did. And so do I think Georgia will get more attention than Florida? Yes. North Carolina North Carolina is sort of like Florida in that it also breaks Democratic hearts. Yeah, I think because I think maybe partially because there was the 2000 election didn't hinge on North Carolina, so we don't have that always hanging over us. I think North Carolina kind of the expectations are set a little lower, so it's not so devastating when it happens. But North Carolina, I think it's a pretty close in 2022. 
Ted Budd, the Republican, the new Republican senator, he won by three to four points. So not super, super close, but pretty close. So I think Georgia will be a top tier target for both parties for president. North Carolina, probably it'll be up there, won't get as much attention, but more of a reach target for Democrats, but it'll be in the conversation. Florida, I today I think they would kind of keep an eye on it, but not really spend a lot of money there because it costs so much money to run statewide in Florida, even for a presidential campaign that's an investment. If you think you can win the state, you know, you'll go for it, but otherwise there are other places to go. So if I had to guess now, I think Florida for both president and for Senate will kind of be like Texas. There'll be state Democrats have their eye on, might put some resources into, but it's just so expensive. You don't want to spend so much money on something that's probably not going to happen, but we'll see. I mean, it feels like all the time Democrats kind of for a little while get our hopes up about Florida and it just Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see also. And I should say, even though it is a even though it is an expensive state, presidential candidates usually have so much money to spend. There might be some money in the budget to at least try to make something happen, and even in a place like Florida, rather than air the million pad in Wisconsin or some place like that that's oversaturated. But I don't know. We'll we'll have to see where things go closer to that year. Okay, now I want to ask you about Michigan. Um, I'm originally from Michigan, so I have a very soft in my heart and I'm so excited on election night when they had such a great win there it was really amazing it brought me back to my childhood when we had a lot of Democrats in Michigan um, the Michigan Senate race uh, looks like it's going to be hopping so what are your thoughts about that yeah so Debbie Stabenow the Democratic Senate, the senior Democratic Senator from Michigan she Someone unexpectedly announced a few weeks ago she wouldn't seek a fifth term. Not a complete shock, but it it caught some people off guard. So far, no major candidates have announced from either side, but it's only a matter of time. One of the Democrats who gets a lot of attention is Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin. She represents a very swingy state around Lansing and the Detroit suburbs. There's all the talk that she's going to announce any day now. Um, we always say at Daily Coast Elections, you're not running until you're running, so people always have the right. time to back out. But, um, but she's, it would be a it would be a big big surprise if she didn't run. There's a lot of other can, Democratic candidates looking at it. Um, the Lieutenant Governor, he would be the first Black Senator from Michigan, um, Garland. He he he'd be an interesting choice. Uh, Bretton Joe Lawrence, she's a former Congresswoman. She just retired. She said. I'd like a black candidate, a strong black candidate to run, and if one doesn't, I might just run myself. So um, you have Haley Stevens. And what about on the Republican side? Yeah, so on the Republican side, a lot of the talk has gone on about Congressman John James. He was the Republican nominee against Sabinow in 2018. He lost about 51% to 46%, so not a nail-biter, but a bit closer than people expected. He challenged Senator Gary Peters there two years two years later in 2020. Came much closer, but Peters still held him off. He ran for the House in 2022. He did win, but it was much closer than people thought expected. They thought it would be a romper to John James. It wasn't. He would also be Michigan's first black senator. Um, when Brenda Lawrence says she wants a strong black candidate, she definitely does not mean him. 
I'll just say that. But <laughs> yeah, he's he's well, got it'll be interesting to watch. Yeah, yeah, and there's a there's a bunch of others. There, there's a huge list on both from both parties on who could run. Um, you know, if, if if I had to guess the matchup, I would say it's Blockin versus James, but that's just a huge guess. Things are things are very fluid. Prime. It's possible one of them won't run. It's possible both of them won't run. It's possible both of them will. Primaries still have to happen. It's There's a lot left to go. But I think that would be a very competitive matchup. But Michigan's sort of been the anti-Florida. It, Democrats have done better there than expected. So yeah, I, yeah exactly. I think we, I'm very yeah, proud I think of that. We start with the end. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think we're, we're in a good sh- – we're, we're starting out in a good position to hold the seats. Nothing's assured by any means, but – Starting out strong, I think. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. I'm going to pass it on to Vinny for his questions. Thanks so much. Vinny? Catherine and Jeff, good, good to meet you. Um, yeah, good so, talk to you. So, so Catherine sort of started this down the, the, the Senate rabbit hole, and I kind of want to take you really deep down that hole. Um, it, it's crazy. It is January of 2023, and, and there are two, two states I want to kind of get your thoughts on where they're already off and running on our side, at least. California and then Arizona. The, the California race is, is, is crazy. You know, Senator Feinstein, I don't think, has announced she's not running for re-election. Um, but apparently everybody's decided either she isn't or if she is, well, it's time for her to go because Katie Porter and Adam Schiff are already out there. My My inbox already is just... I think I average five from Schiff a day and probably seven emails a day from Kitty Porter already. <laughs> uh, and they, they, again, I know their 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 system is is similar to, to Louisiana's, although they do the primary earlier, but the top two get to the general, and it is not uncommon in California for that to be two Democrats. So, so kind of, first of all, sorry, what are your thoughts on, on the California race first, how early it's getting going, and, and how do you see it sort of playing out? Yeah, so, um, yeah, California, before I lived in Louisiana, California is where I'm from. Um, so California, like you said, very blue state, very different from Louisiana. Nothing's assured, but we've had several competitive races there where two Democrats did advance to the general election. And Diane Feinstein, she's she's represented the state since 1992. She's 89. She hasn't announced she's retiring, but everyone assumes she will. Adam Schiff, he said a few months ago, I'm not going to run unless she unless Feinstein retires. Last week he announced he's he's running, even though Feinstein hasn't made her plans clear. He said I wouldn't be doing this without her blessing. So if she decided to run again, she'd be surprising everybody. And at the moment, there are two announced Democratic members of the House, Adam Schiff and Katie Porter. They're, they're both, they're, they both have big national party bases, but they are somewhat different. Porter, she's, she was a protege of Elizabeth Warren. She's very big on consumer protection. She's famous for, in Congress, holding hearings where she would take out her whiteboard, she would use it to grill corporate executives, help make her a, help make her a star nationwide. Schiff He's been there much longer. Porter was elected in the 2018 blue wave from a, from a historically red seat in Orange County. Schiff was elected back in 2000. He's from, he's from the L.A. area. He represents a good portion of, of Los Angeles right now. Schiff 
if, if we were talking about the Senate race 10 years ago, we'd say, well, Schiff's more of a moderate. He's a member of the Blue Dog Caucus of, kind of, conser- of conservative Democrats. But since Trump came on the scene and got into the White House, Schiff has been this big anti-Trump guy. He was the top Democrat on the Intelligence Committee. He was very vocal early about collusion with Russia. He was the manager of Trump's first impeachment. So he he went from being pretty anonymous to this big Democratic superstar. And like I said, they're both big favorites, but they do have different pitches. Porter talks more about going after big companies. Schiff talks more about Trump and saving democracy. So neither of those are mutually exclusive. I, they have very similar voting records to the time they've been in Congress, but they are making different pitches. There's likely to be a third Democratic member, a Democratic House member in the race soon, Barbara Lee. She's, she's also a big progressive favorite, but different from the other two. She's been there since 1998. In 2001, right after 9-11, she was the one member of Congress to vote against authorizing the use of force against Afghanistan. She said, I we want to go after the Taliban and al-Qaeda, but this has not been well considered. We're giving the Bush administration too much power without thinking things through. One member of Congress to, to vote no. At the time, she was a, it made her sort of a pariah. But even Republicans in the last few years have admitted, no, she had a point. This really wasn't, just, this really wasn't well thought out. We shouldn't have done, we shouldn't have done it the way we did. And especially as the war in Afghanistan before it ended became really unpopular. Suddenly people who were against Barbara Lee are taking another look and saying, huh, yeah, she, she was right. And she she, um, would be the first, she'd be the only black woman in the Senate if she won now. She's mentioned that she's 76. She's privately, um, their stories have said that she said, I'll just be there for one term. I want to make sure, we have a black woman senator. I'd just be a transitional figure. She hasn't said that publicly. Um, so you have, assuming she runs, and like I said, you're not running until you're running, you'd have three different Democratic representatives who are big national party favorites, but they have three different pitches, so to speak. They're emphasizing different things. Um, and it's possible more candidates could get in. Ro Khanna, he's another Democratic House member from Silicon Valley. He's talked about running, but he said, I'm going to see what Barbara Lee does. I have a lot of respect for her, so I'd be surprised if he ran against her, but you never know. It's possible more people will get in, but even though it is early, California is a very big, very expensive state to run in. Even though all three of these these House members are pretty well known nationally, none of them have run statewide. They represent 152nd of the whole state, so not even 2% of Californians are their constituents right now. So, And California is just such a hard state to be well-known in because it just is, it's just so sprawling. Even if you're famous in L.A., in the Bay Area where I'm from, might not have ever heard of you, or vice versa. Or there's also Fresno, San Diego, Sacramento, just so many areas to introduce yourself to. So it's not a state where you can just, jump in late and expect to do well. You really have to lay the groundwork very early. And that's why we're seeing so many announcements early. Okay. So, so um, sort of turn your head to, to Arizona, which I think is really interesting. Certainly there are many Democrats that are not happy with the incumbent uh, senator from Arizona. 
Um, and there's, she's already got a challenger, assuming she does seek re-election. Um, so how do you kind of see that one playing out? Yes. Yeah, so Kirsten Sinema, in 2018, she became the first Democrat to win a Senate race there since 1988. So it was a big deal. She... She immediately became a big pain for the party. She, along with Joe Manchin, she would block or at least severely delay everything. Um, Congressman Ruben, Ga- Ruben Gallego, he was making he was making moves to challenge her in the Democratic primary until December, where Cinema announces, "I'm going to become an independent. Still going to caucus with the Democrats, but I'm going to become an independent." So Gallego, he announced last week he'd be the first. Latino senator from Arizona, and at the moment he has the Democratic primary to himself. That could change, but Gallego, he announced early he's raised a lot of money quickly. I'd be surprised if he has any serious inter-party opposition. The Republican side's really still taking shape. There's a lot of people talking about running. Nobody's gotten in yet, but Arizona, it's a, it's a swing state. The Republicans aren't going to leave it uncontested. So that leaves the question, what does Cinema do and how does it affect the race? Cinema hasn't committed to running again. If she did, be it independent. There was there's been a lot of fears that she's a former Democrat, she'll take some Democrat she'll take more Democrat votes than Republican votes. She could make the race unlivable for Gallego or whoever the Democrat nominee is. It's possible, but Cinema was very, very, very unpopular with Democrats before even before she left the party. But um, Coast Media's pollster, Civics, they did a poll just before she left. Her approval rating with Democratic voters in Arizona, 5%. So Republican voters, about a quarter. So not beloved, but more Republicans liked her. So it's possible she could take more votes from them. I don't know if that'll happen, but I don't think even if she runs again, she would – take the seat off the table for Democrats by any means. I do think she'd have a, huge, a hard time winning re-election because she's just made so many enemies. She's pretty much just pissed off everyone. She doesn't really have a big national constituency in the state other than corporate donors, and that can only take you so far even in this day and age. So we'll see. But at this point, if she runs, she... If it's looking likely she takes third place. The only question is how much she'd get and who she'd hurt. Okay, well, thanks. Well, I am now going to pass it over to David. Yes. Um, Jeff, uh, just kind of what we always do when you're on with us, uh, before you go, if people want to read your work on Daily Coast Elections or read your work on social media, Um, share all those locations and handles you'd like to. Yeah, so we, I write for Daily Coast Elections. We put out a free morning newsletter. It goes out every weekday morning. We run down the big developments in races for Senate, for Governor, for House. Sometimes we go lower to mayors, state legislatures, district attorneys, it's the Daily Coast Elections Morning Digest. You can sign it for free at Daily Coast Elections. Um, and you can find 
you can find me at on Twitter at DarthJeff90. Uh, DarthJeff was my username well before I started working for Daily Coast, so I've kind of held on to that. And you can find our elections team's Twitter account at DK Elections. And okay, if you are still part of the question. Yeah, sure. Go ahead, Catherine. Well, I just wanted to ask you, Jeff, if there's any um, – I like to ask our well-informed guests – if there's anything that that you think we should be thinking about that we didn't bring up today. Like, is there are there races or states or things going on that you have found particularly interesting that weren't mentioned? Um, one thing – I sort of got my start talking about writing about state legislatures and calculating presidential results by state legislatures so we can find out how well presidential candidates did in each legislative state. So I, state legislatures are just such a huge deal, especially in this day and age where they can decide so much on environmental policy, on abortion rights. Some states... I'm right there with Louisiana, you. You are preaching yeah. to the choir. Yeah. Some states Go like ahead. Louisiana are just so red or so gerrymandered that only can do so much. But Michigan, where we were talking about earlier, in 2022, Democrats won really narrow historic margins in both the Michigan State House and Senate. First time they've won the state Senate since 1984. Like 1984 is when the Republicans took it. Haven't Until last year, it was in Republican hands this whole time. Democrat, the, the state Senate only is up every four years, so Democrats have it for a while. The state house, Democrats have a two-seat majority. It's going to be up in 2024. Big deal to hold it. That is, as far as state legislative battles go, that's going to be a big one. Arizona, Republicans have narrow majorities in both the House and the Senate. Now there's a Democratic governor, Katie Hobbs. Big, big deal if Democrats can take one or preferably both chambers of the legislature. There are so many more legislatures in play, but those two I would I want to talk about Michigan and Arizona. Those two are are very important to watch going into 2024. Thank you for bringing that up because I I, I don't think we spend enough time talking about the importance of state legislatures in our all our political talking because they are so so essential to the to our day to day lives and we kind of forget about them. So thank you for bringing that up. I'm sorry I interrupted. Go ahead, David. No, no, go ahead. That's good. Um, well, Jeff, thanks again for coming on the show. We've already got the social media handles and Daily Coast Elections, uh, Daily Digest, and we thank you for coming on again, and we'll plan to call on you in the, uh, you know, sometime, maybe in 2023 to appear again. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to it. And um, as Adam West told me, have a nice dinner. Sounds good All right, what a great story That was uh, the the start off with And and I think you told more about it Obviously in Daily Co's uh, On the blog You know, years ago Well, um, it was great to have Jeff on Uh, We were talking about the um, Flat tax And we're almost to the bottom of the hour But since we have Benny on I want to get his last word Um since this was really, you know, made a lot of national attention, Benny, um, one of our frequent guests, Rachel Bittenkoffer, has made a lot of talk about how this should be the centerpiece of messaging until it gets off the, um, 
you know, the agenda and with the Republicans having control, who knows if it ever will. Um, politically, how do you think the Democrats could best use this issue that's probably going to be very unpopular? I'm sorry, which issue? Uh, the the flat tax, the, the value-added tax that oh, oh. Claude proposed. We're going to go back to that yeah. and to finish the show. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I just think Democrats harp on the fact that scaled taxes are the single most regressive tax that we pay. I mean, excise taxes are regressive, but they're taxes of choice, um, Many, most of them. Sales taxes are incredibly regressive. They hurt people of modest and low incomes far harder than they people with upper incomes. And I think just harping on that, I mean, and, and, and I know we don't have about a minute or two left, but the way they write it in the bill, when it's really 30, because, you know, if it's, a, if it's um, $100 with the taxes 130, well, they say that's 23%. It's really only twenty three percent. You know, they're they're playing with the math. Um, <laughs> God. Yeah, it, it's the thirty. It's the thirty dollar tax is really only twenty three percent of one hundred and thirty. You know, but yeah, just play to the fact that who it hurts the econo- the real economic impact it's have it's going to have. I mean, I think, I, I think that's the way you, that's the way I would argue it. Yes. Well, uh, Vinny, we thank you for coming in tonight, and what we're going to let you leave us with is we know that you're a political consultant by trade. You have a website for your firm, and we figure since you gave us your time, you deserve a a free plug. So tell folks how they could um, visit your website in case they have a campaign they needed you for. Sure, thanks. Uh, My business, my company is Campaigns by Vincent. My website is campaignsbyvincent.com I do all kinds of consulting I often work with first time candidates and challengers help them learn because too many candidates don't know what they don't know Um, I have what I call kind of a la carte consulting I figure out a plan to give a candidate what they need and only what they need kind of like Liberty Mutual Insurance Um, but again (laughs) But yeah, it's just campaignsbyvincent.com. You can uh, you can also find me the same place on Facebook. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, and my contact information is there. It's Vinny at campaignsbyvincent.com is my email. And yes. Thank you. So now, if folks call Vinny up and they ask to meet his emu, they'll know we heard it. They heard Vinny on our show, <laughs> and that's where they got connected up with him. Well, um, excited about next week um, when um, Taylor um, from Jackson, Clary, and Ledger is going to join us and talk to us about uh, Mississippi politics. Um, Lots going on, and they also have an odd year governor's race, so we're going to discuss that uh, next week. Welcome, Tim, back. But, Vinny, we're glad you could fill in. And for tonight, from the Cousy Vine, Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, everybody. Good night. Night. Night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. With a strong and united.